This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for August 18th, 2021. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, today I'd like to talk about some recent work that has to do with different aspects of immunity, breakthrough infections after vaccination, antiserum as therapy, and an intriguing study on the potential breadth of the immune response. Let's start with infections that occur in people who were vaccinated. Much of the interest today is in the increased ability of the Delta variant to infect people who are immune either because of vaccination or because of prior infection. But today we're publishing a letter describing infections with the older Alpha variant. What did we learn in this letter? This is a small case series of infections in healthcare workers at a single center in Germany. Of more than 1,100 vaccinated individuals, four immunocompetent women developed symptomatic infections after receiving a full vaccine course. All four were young with ages ranging from 28 to 48, and all had received the BNT162B2 vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine, according to the standard dosing schedule. They developed symptoms anywhere from 47 to 72 days after receiving the second dose of vaccine, well into the period when immunity should have been established. The viral loads were reasonably high for three of the individuals, and PCR remained positive anywhere from 5 to 32 days after recovery. Importantly, no one was particularly symptomatic. In fact, three were tested when an unvaccinated household contact was diagnosed, while the fourth was picked up in routine screening. So this is good news, or at least good news pre-Delta. COVID-19 rates were very low in the vaccinated population at that time, and all the disease in this small group was extremely mild. It does, of course, seem that attack rates are likely to be higher with Delta, but it still remains true that serious disease is unusual in those who've received the vaccine. So, Eric, I think that, as you point out, this really highlights how do we think of the endpoint of interest? Do we want a vaccine to prevent infection, symptomatic illness, or severe illness? So ultimately, do we want to convert SARS-CoV-2 to the common cold or to be non-existent? I think the latter is unlikely. But how do we push the severity of illness to nil and make this more of a nuisance infection? And that's something we are going to have to think a lot about as a society as we think about boosters and other strategies to control this virus and its variants, what is it we hope to achieve? These data also highlight the issue of compartments. How much is systemic immunity that prevents more systemic illness? How much mucosal immunity that can block acquisition? And are these really the same process or might there be different immunologic properties of our vaccines and how they behave in key compartments. I'd like to expand on something you just said, Lindsay, a little bit, which is the question of mucosal versus systemic immunity. The vaccines we have likely, because they're administered systemically, likely induce systemic immunity, but probably not particularly good mucosal immunity, uh, which usually is induced by vaccines that encounter mucosal surfaces. Unfortunately, the vaccines that we have like that are live viral vaccines. They're attenuated viruses, which can infect a mucosal surface and replicate to generate enough antigen over a long enough period of time to induce a response. It's not clear that the inactivated vaccines that we're using of various kinds for COVID-19 would do the same, even if they were applied at a mucosal surface. 
So it is likely that the vaccine strategies that we have right now are less likely to produce mucosal immunity and perhaps therefore less likely to completely prevent infection as opposed to allowing infections to occur, but decreasing the severity of those infections. I mean, I think, Eric, it's an open question if the elicitation of mucosal immunity is a property of the construct, such as a replicating attenuated viral infection, or a property of where and how it's administered, such as in the mucosa or the skin, as opposed to intravenous or IM. And so I think it's an open question. But the principle that the mucosal compartment and the systemic compartment may have different immunologic properties, which then may allow an infecting virus to take a foothold and behave a little bit differently, I think is important. Ultimately, systemic illness is what we want to prevent because that will likely lead to severe illness. But probably mucosal acquisition amplification may be critically important as we think of public health measures to control transmission. We've recently seen several studies looking at the efficacy of antibodies to either prevent or treat disease. And last week, we discussed the use of monoclonal antibodies in patients with a known exposure to COVID-19. Today, we published an article using a different source of antibodies, convalescent plasma, and a different application, treatment of disease early in infection. What did these investigators find? This group conducted a single-blind, randomized controlled trial of convalescent plasma versus placebo in patients who were presenting to emergency rooms in 21 U.S. states. All those patients had symptomatic COVID-19, though they'd been symptomatic for less than seven days and had risk factors for progression. They were followed to the point of the primary outcome at 15 days, a composite of hospital admission, re-presentation for emergency or urgent care, or death. Importantly, the trial was performed during the summer of 2020 through the winter of 2021, a time when many of the current viral variants were not circulating widely in the U.S. The researchers included about 250 patients in each arm, and it turned out they had symptoms for a mean of four days prior to the intervention. The planned sample size had been larger, but the Data Safety Monitoring Board stopped the trial for futility at a planned interim analysis point. At that time, the primary outcome had occurred in about 30% of the convalescent plasma group and 32% of the placebo group, a difference that was not likely to result in a superior outcome based on the Bayesian statistical analysis performed by the authors. The authors concluded that convalescent plasma didn't decrease the risk of progression in this group. This has been a muddy area. Most large trials have not shown much benefit of convalescent plasma. There is, however, one exception, which we've discussed before, a study performed in older patients in Argentina who received the treatment very shortly after the onset of symptoms. We don't know if the differences among the patients, the plasma that was used, or the timing of administration accounts for some of these differences, but it's certainly true that it's impossible to conclude that convalescent plasma will have a robust effect. So Eric, as we've discussed before, this is a complex area to study. What we do learn from this study is the value of carefully designed trials that allow statistical insight earlier based upon robust stopping rules or futility rules, so we get answers earlier and minimize putting participants at risk. We do know that IVIG, or immune globulin-targeting pathogens, has value in other diseases. We know this with rabies, hepatitis B, tetanus, 
where immune globulin plays an important role in the prevention of illness. We also have seen the emergence of monoclonal antibodies that are targeted, high titer, and much work has gone into the timing of administration as well as understanding viral epitopes to target and that this may fail when the virus evolves and lose those targets. So what to do with convalescent plasma? I think at this point, the way in which we approach it, we do not see significant evidence of benefit, but it is a very complicated area. And I do think the monoclonal antibodies do shed insight that it is possible, but one needs a robust scientific process to identify who and when for which outcome will provide benefit. Lindsay, as we discussed last week, the primary role of antibodies, whether they're convalescent plasma or more likely monoclonal antibodies, might be in prophylaxis against disease rather than therapy, because it does look like these are not highly effective as therapeutic agents. Finally, we published an article today that might help us understand how to craft vaccines with potential activity against diverse viral variants. The investigators studied a unique group of individuals. But before we get to that, what assay did the group use? So this group of investigators from Singapore studied neutralizing antibody responses to vaccination. As we've discussed in the past, we don't know precisely what these assays mean. There does seem to be some rough correlation with protection. Using this surrogate marker of immunity has taught us a good deal. For example, last week's recommendation by the FDA and the CDC advisory panel of a third dose of vaccine is based entirely on these sorts of in vitro results. So these aren't in any way equivalent to studies that measure protection, but they can be useful for setting policy and for understanding how immunity works. So Erica, I think that these types of data are important for us to understand how the immunity works. The challenge is how we actually use them for policy. Because with policy, we will change our behavior and how we deploy these vaccines, but how confident are we that we understand the clinical benefit that these parameters are measuring and we are hopeful in form? So I think we have to be careful as we go forward collectively in purely utilizing in vitro data to establish the policy on who should be vaccinated and who should be boosted. I think it's important that we do understand clinical outcomes, as these are the more robust findings that inform how we improve health. So this group used antibody responses to ask a somewhat different question. Would people who were infected with a very diverse virus have broader immune responses after immunization than those who were infected with a homologous virus? So how did the investigators do this and what did they find? Steve, remember that SARS-CoV-2 is a member of the beta coronavirus family. And while there are a couple of beta coronaviruses that infect humans that cause very mild disease, there are three major viruses that have caused severe illness in humans. The MERS virus, which is rather distantly related, but is a beta coronavirus, is still endemic at low levels, primarily in the Middle East. But in 2003, there was the original outbreak caused by the SARS virus, which is now often referred to as SARS-CoV-1. We didn't know at the time there was going to be a two. This virus is much more closely related to SARS-CoV-2, though it is quite distinct. And the disease has many differences, including that it was far more severe. But despite a high mortality rate, there are several survivors from that outbreak. So this group asked if the antibody response to vaccination 
would be more broadly reactive in SARS survivors than in others. They obtained five panels of serum, one each from SARS and COVID-19 patients prior to vaccinations, similar patients who are vaccinated with the Pfizer vaccine and healthy vaccine recipients with no prior infection. They tested this vaccine for neutralization against a range of viruses. All of the Sierra can neutralize a variety of SARS-CoV-2 variants well, except for those from SARS-CoV-1 infected patients prior to vaccination. However, the serum from the SARS-CoV-1 infected patients were still able to neutralize SARS-CoV-1 and could do so better than any of the other groups, even after receiving vaccine. But the striking finding was with other viruses. The investigators tested the ability of the Sierra to neutralize a variety of animal beta coronaviruses, a way of looking at sort of extreme diversity beyond the natural variation that we're seeing in the human population. They found that while there was some neutralization with serum from healthy controls or COVID-19 patients who'd been vaccinated, only those with remote SARS-CoV-1 infection produced consistent and very high level neutralization of every virus tested. So you introduced this, Steve, by saying this is an unusual group of people and we're not likely to learn much about protection against infection and disease. But for me, these are very encouraging data because they suggest that boosting with heterologous viral proteins might lead to broader immunity, not just against SARS-CoV-2 variants, but possibly even against the next animal beta coronavirus that might get into the human population. So Eric, I think you raise several interesting observations. First, when we just think of beta coronaviruses, there are those like OC43 and HKU1, which cause the common cold. So though they are related to SARS-CoV-2, they have adapted to the humans in a way, to us, that causes mild infection and rarely severe illness. There's MERS, the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome virus, which does cause severe illness, but this virus, which has been grumbling along in the Middle East for many years, hasn't figured out how to efficiently transmit between people. And then we have the two SARS viruses, which have been able to transmit efficiently between people, but SARS-CoV-1, which we can call it now, tended to cause severe illness and not be very infectious until you were significantly symptomatic, thus making it much easier to control its transmission. And SARS-CoV-2, as we've all experienced over the last 18 months, has solved many of these problems to become efficient in its transmission and its own survival. What do we make of the data of those who had SARS-CoV-1 and were subsequently boosted and had a broader immune response? As you point out, there may be many features of these individuals from 20 years ago that we cannot measure. So they may just be different genetically, environmentally, how they were infected, other features that we can't measure. But on the face of it, as you suggest, prior infection with a related virus primes the immune system in a way that allows broader boosting. And whether this is the heterologous antigen as suggested, or is there a timing issue of immune maturation? And if there is proper spacing between antigen exposure, one also gets an augmented immune response. I think these are open questions, but it does make the point that multiple exposures over time to heterologous but similar antigens may lead to a broader and more robust immune response. 
as you say, Lindsay, I think this is very encouraging. And I'm hopeful that we can use this information to develop a better vaccination strategy. It is complicated. And I know you're always happy to point out how complicated it is to do vaccinology. Remember that these patients were infected a very long time ago. And whether timing matters, we don't know. Also, their exposure to other viruses in the interim after their initial infection with SARS-CoV-1 might make a difference. That being said, what's being discussed today, I mean, in fact, being implemented in many places today is giving a third boost of vaccine with the same, the homologous vaccine that people had received before. But this suggests that a more appealing strategy might be to boost with something that's not so related, in fact, perhaps even fairly distant from the initial vaccine dose. And that might elicit a broader response that might help protect us against these weird viruses, along with new variants that might pop up later. Eric, your point is well taken that the heterologous insert may be very important in broadening the immune response. There's also the delivery system, the timing as we discussed, the dose. Unfortunately, biology and science is complicated, but we as a society have a relatively simple decision. Do we need a boost? And if so, when and at what frequency? And that is being vigorously debated. And hopefully we can develop as much scientific insight as possible to inform this type of public health decision making. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.